Hey there, thank you for tapping over to this episode of Coast to Coast. You know, there have been a lot of reasons that have both been built and taken for granted that end up ranking the U.S. at such an advantage globally. One to me that tends to get most unnoticed, perhaps because it is the one that is most obvious, is the geography. Yes, we have friendly neighbors to the north and south that give the United States an advantage over most places that have to worry about rivalries or ethnic strife or historical axes to grind. The oceans also flank the other sides, certainly helping it as well, and further the point of how little geography tends to get considered. But within the country, from coast to coast and border to border, there's a broad range of climates, resources, even cultures that give the country an advantage. One of those advantages within the country, a staggering advantage that has largely been left to rot, which is ironic given that before there was a sweeping amount of rail lines or even the invention of a truck, let alone airplanes. This advantage was meticulously expanded by hand over vast miles and without which I think I could easily argue the country couldn't have become such a powerhouse of regional specialization. It's not sexy, but fundamentals rarely, if ever, are. But if it's an advantage that's not only built the progress on which we stand on, but one that can further causes going ahead in the present and can affect everything from transportation to admissions reduction. Okay, enough of a buildup. One of the greatest assets the U.S. has and is going to waste is our navigable waterways. The rivers, lakes, and canals, even shorelines on the ocean that connect together are big and deep enough for ships to traverse, which stretch out over a meaningful distance. So navigable waterways, in short, places that we could put ships on to move things. Let me give you some numbers to put this in somewhat of a perspective, even though numbers are hard to visualize. The U.S. has about 40,000 kilometers of inland waterways. The second most country in the world, Finland, has 8,100. Think about that. 8,000 versus 40,000. You don't need to know the conversion of what kilometers are to miles to understand that's staggering. No other country comes close to the potential to move things on the most efficient form of transportation pound for pound. Let me, dig let me digress on that for a second. Think about it. If you ever spent time in a boat and see how when you're moving around from the dock, a single person can push or move around a speedboat to slide it into place with some effort, but it's a single person moving a giant boat. Why is that? Well, Eureka, it's buoyancy. The floating of the boat on the water makes shifting the weight easier to move around. The same holds true for a barge full of grain going down the Mississippi. It's a lot more efficient to move that grain down water than it would be by truck or plane or hell, even rail. But alas, we can't escape physics, not yet at least. And water still takes the crown as the easiest, most efficient way to move things. It's not faster, but not everything needs speed, and it would have lower costs, higher reliability, 
and from there, more can be sorted out. That efficiency from physics, also tied with modern technology, can create ships that emit far less and would be a net emissions reduction from trucks, which account for the majority of transportation today. And if we were actually leaning into moving things by ship, we'd be able to figure out some of the logistics, moving things maybe the last bit on trucks, or, or moving things that make sense by rail and the rest by boat. Majority of Americans live not all that far from either a navigable waterway or the coastline, yet we're not taking advantage of this. So we have an environmental and a business win. Then why is this opportunity being left to rot? If you haven't heard my other episode on this topic, the reason is the Jones Act, a century plus old law that forbids ships from operating within the U.S. if they are not made in the U.S. and crewed by U.S. citizens. A bill that on the face of it looks to be protectionist. One could even see it being argued by the national security angle. But oh, how those unintended consequences love to crop up. And this Jones Act ends up being the opposite of any of those arguments. As this episode unfolds, you'll see how the nuances of the law require specifics on the bill down to the steel being put together requiring an act of Congress in one case to pass a resolution to be able to finish the completion of a boat. Or how tragic the irony of the build clause is writ large, given that most of the components needed for the building of a ship come from overseas. But the best example of how something plays out is always in the experience of it. And there's many of those that lend useful laboratories for how different things would be without this requirement. Like the Great Lakes, juxtaposing the US and Canada, or Puerto Rico versus Trinidad, or even New England versus the rest of the world. The Jones Act is a truly horrendous handicap on a great opportunity that the US has. Not just the inland waterways, but the number of Americans who live just 100 miles off the coast. In this episode, Colin Grabo from the Cato Institute joins me again to give us a bit of an update on the state of the Jones Act since we last talked. And, spoiler alert, unfortunately not much has changed, other than some logistic nightmares from COVID that give more credence to ending the law. We talk about those logistics, the massive missed opportunity, what it would look like if the Jones Act was not in place, with some helpful examples to prove it out, and why it is the Jones Act can't just be repealed. If you want to know more, follow Colin's work linked in the description. Also check out our other episode on the Jones Act that goes more into what it was and how it was formed, which is episode 26 in this season, or on the Sugar Cartel, episode 22, also with Colin. Which, fun fact, the United States operates a cartel for sugar. All right, with that, thank you for listening. Enjoy the episode wherever it is that you are on our big, beautiful blue planet. I'm wishing you well. Hey, real quick while I have you here. If you like what you're listening to, please tap that follow or subscribe, as well as sign up for notifications so you'll know when our next season or episode drops. Also, if you're curious to look at our catalog of all that we have to offer and some exciting things we have to come, 
please visit us at bandwidth.productions. Sweet. Okay, cool. Well, thank you again. I know it's been, uh, I think we were saying like a year and a half. Um, so I'm going to ask a question just to kind of get us into it. And then we'll you know, start talking about all the great things of the Jones Act, uh, which is what is your favorite food? My favorite food. That is a good question. Um, well, so my wife is Spanish, so I'm kind of biased towards towards food uh, from Spain. Um, uh, oh my goodness! So I, you know, I don't know about a particular dish, but I do like you know, I don't know a genre. <laughs> I like I like as far as type of cuisine. I like Spanish uh, cuisine, Canadian, Mediterranean uh, food. Um, but yeah, no, that's a, it's a I'll say apple pie is my favorite food. <laughs> I dig that. That's totally, yeah. that's totally. And my, my wife, my wife, you know, living here in the U S she's actually learned to, to, to bake an apple pie. She does it quite well. So, so on special occasions, I get an apple pie. That is, there's nothing wrong with that. It's very American, which is awesome. Cause we're going to be talking about America a lot. Uh, but I mean, there's. There's something about apple pie that when you have it at the right time, it's just amazing, especially when it's warm and fresh. We were talking right before that you said that the Great Lakes, which I'm particularly fond of, uh, hasn't had a ship. So what what I'll do really quick, just so that this is going to be a standalone, is explain what the Jones Act is, which is mostly what we're going to be talking about. Um, And then I'll go back on with my question, which um, feel free to alter any of the definition of the Jones Act. Um, so the Jones Act, early 1900s, uh, there is a ban on any shipping that is done inside the United States to be done by a ship that is crewed and created. So I guess the vessel was, was I don't know, what, the, what, what do you call it when you create a ship? Is there a specific term for it? So the, so the Jones Act, to, to transport goods by water in the United States, to comply with the Jones Act, the vessels used have to be American flagged be american built have to be american crewed they have to be american owned perfect okay cool thank you for that so uh it seems like a good idea seemed like a good idea at the time but the ripples of it is obviously uh quite problematic uh so you were saying that the great lakes which is huge i think we kind of take it for granted in in america just how amazing and, and large and an asset the great lakes are but you had mentioned that for the first time in 38 years, the Great Lakes got their got a ship, a new ship added to it, um, which if you could let us know why that's such a long time, especially considering some of the new advancements and new ships that have been happening in Canada and how old you know, and integral is the, the Great Lakes you know, shipping fleet itself. Yes. So, um, so the Jones Act, obviously it applies to the Great Lakes as well. So if you want to transport uh, goods uh, within the Great Lakes, so for example, taking um, taconite to uh, the steel mills uh, elsewhere in the Great Lakes. So the raw, the raw inputs that go to the steel mills, um, that has to go on Jones Act compliant ships. And Jones Act compliant ships on the Great Lakes, so U.S. flagged, U.S. built ships, tend to be very old. Part of this is because it's they operate in fresh water. Fresh water uh, is less caustic; you know, doesn't take as much of a toll on on the ship as salt water does. 
But uh, even so, the, the ages of these vessels uh, are, are really something. Um, there hasn't been a new, you know, last year there was a new ship delivered for the Great Lakes fleet. And it was the first new ship delivered since, I believe, 1983. So 1983 to 2022, you know, so yeah, but, you know, almost 40 years without a new ship. Uh, now, what's interesting is we kind of have a natural experiment going on on the Great Lakes and that the Great Lakes is also bordered by Canada. So there's a Canadian fleet there. Now, Canada back in, I want to say 2012, something like this, uh, around 2010, they used to have a 25% tariff on imports of new ships and they get rid of that. And what happened? Canadians started modernizing their fleets, um, and there have been numerous uh, new ships added to the Canadian fleet over the last decade, whereas the U.S. fleet has gotten one new ship. So, you know, this has obvious implications for efficiency. You know, newer ships, they tend to have uh, newer technologies that make them more efficient to operate. They tend to be more environmentally friendly with lower emissions, better fuel efficiency. Um, so we have this natural experiment going on where the Canadians are getting uh, lots of new ships and Americans are not. And I think a very obvious reason here is the Jones Act, because to comply with the Jones Act, the ships have to be built in the United States. Unfortunately, U.S. shipbuilders are much less efficient, much less competitive than those found in other countries. This is kind of predictable. When you protect industries like this, they don't have to compete. They become uncompetitive. Um, dramatically so. Uh, now, I don't know about Great Lakes ships in particular, but for ocean-going ships, you know, U.S. tankers are four times more uh, than those built abroad. Container ships can cost five times more. And when you're talking assets that cost, you know, tens of millions of dollars, so instead of costing, say, $50 million for a new ship, you have to pay $200 million or more uh, that has a real deterrent effect on modernizing your fleet and buying new ships. The result is uh, these guys just tend to hang on to old ships for longer and, and repair them rather than move on and, and recapitalize and get newer newer vessels. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um, I, have, I have a question of like clarification and just kind of like if this situation would apply to it. So, you know, it would seems like forever ago, forever ago. Uh, you know, sometime after we had last talk, actually, um, there was the huge port of LA uh, bottleneck, right? So there was, you know, cargo ships coming in that were uh, hanging out in the port of uh, LA for way too long. Now, those ships can go, could they have gone to Florida? Or could you have, because the other thing too, that I was noticing from that is that they were taking the cargo and they were bringing it far off, you know, out of the port of, port of LA on trains and then dropping it off. Um, and then leaving it there for a while because they would have to find other ships uh, to go of, which the Jones Act came up quite a bit in that scenario. So if something is coming from abroad into the port of LA, could it have instead went across the Panama Canal and gone to Florida, for example? Um, is that something that could have happened with you know without having the Jones Act? But was it happening with the ship, the, the cargo that was moved outside the port of LA and then needing to be, you know, shipped inside the U.S. What I'm really trying to get at is what is the, the the downstream effect of things that are coming in from abroad versus things that need to be moved, even in emergency situations, you know, intercontinentally or inter-states uh, within the United States? So what the Jones Act says is that foreign ships, they can come to, to U.S. ports. 
And in fact, they can go to multiple U.S. ports. So for example, you can have a ship go from Rotterdam to New York, and then it will go from New York down to Virginia, and then down to say Savannah, and then Florida, and then continue on to a foreign country. Now, what those ships do is they'll drop off, you know, most of their cargo in one of those ports, and they'll move on to other ports, and maybe drop off yet more cargo that originated from abroad, or they'll pick up cargo that's meant for export. So the ultimate destination will be a foreign country. Uh, what those ships cannot do, what they don't do, is pick up, say, a cargo in New York and then drop it off in Miami uh, since they're going there anyway. And I think the way to, to, to think about this is that we have a effectively a conveyor belt along our coasts full of foreign ships. You know, the Jones Act doesn't keep out foreign ships. They're here. It just places a big restriction on what you can do with them and your ability to, to utilize them. So we have this conveyor belt of foreign ships going up and down our coasts that Americans are prohibited from using for transporting goods uh, domestically. So you would think, you know, there are these ships and they're not full and they're, you know, probably looking for extra cargo, but Americans are prohibited from, say, uh, you know, that ship that say, I'm going to Miami and someone say, hey, I got some cargo for you, you can take down there. No, they, they can't do that, even though they do go uh, among American ports. So, you know, I look at this as a, as a missed opportunity um, to give Americans an additional transportation option. And instead, they're stuck using, uh, you know, trucks and, and, and rail uh to move goods around because we don't use shipping in this country to transport goods because it's so uh, economically unattractive. Typically, ships are only used in this country when there is no alternative. So Jones Act ships uh, basically do two things. They either transport goods to Hawaii, Alaska, Puerto Rico, Guam, where you know trucks and rail are not an option, or they transport their tankers that take you know refined products from say the Gulf Coast of Florida, which doesn't have pipelines going there, or uh, you know crude oil from Alaska to West Coast refineries, because again, there is no pipeline. So basically Jones Act ships are used when there's no other option. Yeah, which is which is kind of hilarious to me in like one of those like sad tragedy kind of ways or sad comedy kind of ways. Uh, because I was reading uh, Peter, Peter Zion's most recent book of which we were going back and forth on, and one of the things that I, I was I already had the seed to reach out to you uh, that got kind of exploded uh, when I was reading that book is the first third of it. He goes into the geography of you know North America and what's so unique about it. And one of the things he kind of belabors for you know multiple paragraphs um, is the, that the uh, United States has more navigable waterways than any other place in the world, um, and you know whole regions combined. And what he continues on with that is how much cheaper it is, you know, economically speaking, uh, efficiency. And I guess the way to look at it is like energy efficient to move things by water versus moving things by rail or, or uh, road or any of those things. Because you can move so much, you know, so much weight can be moved without as much effort because of, you know, buoyancy and water and things like that. Which is funny because we've actually inverted that because of the Jones Act. <laughs> Where it's it's more you know energy efficiency wise it's it's greater but actually economically it's once again it's actually inordinately more expensive because there just isn't enough ships to do this which once again the port of L A is is bottlenecked we should be able to use you know both our coastlines and our you know uh, interstate river and canal systems but we can't because there just isn't enough ships and the ones that are there are old and probably also don't carry as much I'm assuming. 
Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it does strike me as a real missed opportunity. Um, you know, right in front of me, I actually have a report from the Congressional Research Service, which shows modal shares of U.S. freight. So, you know, what percentage of freight is going by which uh, modes? And trucks, 43% of freight. Rail, 27%. Barges, you know, which you typically use on, on rivers, inland waterways, uh, 4%. Ships, Two percent, uh, and then and then you know there's like truck and water at one percent, rail and water at two percent. Um, so you know, very very obvious is that waterborne transport, you know, inland and coastal together, uh, is less than ten percent of all U.S. freight moved. Uh, this is measured in ton miles, and this is this is kind of crazy when you stop and think about U.S. geography for a second, as you mentioned. Uh, we have an extensive network of inland waterways, rivers. We have the Great Lakes. Uh, and then we have, um, I think, something like, I want to say, 30% of all Americans live within uh, 100 miles or something of uh, the coast. You know, a lot of Americans live along our coast. Some of our major cities are along our coast. You know, Boston, Miami, Houston, San Francisco, L.A., Seattle. New Orleans, I could come with a whole list, go on and on of all the major cities. And yet we move you know, relatively little by water. And I think that is a real indictment of the Jones Act because we've managed to take what should be this massive asset. And uh, we've kind of turned our backs on the ocean uh, as a means for transporting goods. In fact, you know, there's, a, there's a great book out about maritime policy called the abandoned ocean. And it just speaks to that, how we've kind of turned our backs on the sea as, as, as a means of moving goods here within the United States. Yeah, completely. And growing the tent of uh, people who should be caring about this, you know, you don't need to maintenance any road or rail if it's water, right? So, you know, it's, it's, it's cheaper to do it. Um, but also it's, you know, better for the environment because we can move more. And if we're also paying for new ships, that's going to be cheaper. Uh, you know, and the amount that you can move is once again greater. So, forty-three percent, I think you said, is how much is done by semis. You know, this, the thing that I always like to think is there's nothing you touch that hasn't been on a semi at one point, right? So every everything gets moved at some point on a semi. If we can cut that down to the last hundred miles, well, now all of a sudden there's there, there's less of an uh, an issue with the transportation and, and things like that, and the wear on the roads and the inputs that it takes to build the road and, you know, the, the emissions from doing that. But then again, once again, like what you said, uh, these ships are old, which I would imagine means they're spewing out far worse issues than anything that we create now. Uh, so it's a missed opportunity in, in a month in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, what, what yeah, it's definitely, you know, environmental and, and, you know, you talked about the fact that, you know, we don't need to maintain, uh, don't need to repave, you know, our, our waterways, um, we, you know, we need to maintain the ports and for inland waterways, you know, they, uh, and the ports themselves, they require dredging. Um, and we make that artificially expensive also through the Jones Act, because dredging is also subject to the Jones Act, uh, as well as the Foreign Dredge Act of 1906, which prohibits foreigners from helping us with that. Um, and there's also the environmental angle, you know, as you mentioned, um, and in fact, it, I think yesterday the U.S. Maritime Administration on their Twitter account uh, had a trivia question 
about you know which is the most uh, the least environmentally damaging mode of transport. And they point out that according to the International Maritime Organization, it's it's shipping uh, when the productive value of the good is taken into consideration. The least environmentally damaging mode of transport is shipping, and yet. We make this, we artificially raise the expense of this. We should you know, try to encourage this. And yet through our policies, we discourage this because of course, Jones Act ships, as previously mentioned, are very expensive to build, um, you know, four to five times more expensive. And then they're very expensive to operate, um, roughly three times more expensive to operate than foreign ships. So you take ships that are expensive to build, expensive to operate, you reduce the amount of competition through the Jones Act, and the inevitable result is very expensive transportation, which is unfortunate, uh, whether viewed through an economic lens or an environmental one. Yeah, so many, so many areas. It's it's so interesting. I I, I like complexity science, and if it's complexity science and data, or uh, you know, applied to data or um, economics, or even just uh, environment in general, ecology. It's fascinating how you change one thing and how complex everything else will come from it. Um, and this is an, an amazing example of that. Uh, what, what kind of economic and just day-to-day life does this affect? I, I know your, your example with Maine is an interesting one where they can't get liquefied natural gas. Like, you know, one of the things that's interesting about American ports is how much we're investing in liquefied natural gas, especially with the whole crisis in the Ukraine and Europe uh, and the pipelines shutting down. You know, the investment into liquefied natural gas ports to, to ship it abroad seems like it's increasing quite a bit. But it's fascinating that a place like Maine, I, I believe it's Maine, can't can't get our own natural gas. So there are two places. Yeah, what you're talking about is the fact that uh, the United States were one of the world's leading exporters of natural gas um, and in particular liquefied natural gas. Uh, so this is natural gas that is turned into liquefied form. Then you transport it to wherever it needs to go, and then you turn it, you regasify it. Um, one of the world's leading exporters, and thankfully, after Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the resulting sanctions that were put on Russia, you know, through um, uh, energy networks in a disarray, energy markets in a disarray, but the U.S. is able to step up and help compensate that lack of Russian gas by exporting American gas. So we had you know, dozens of, of tankers uh, you know, come last year, scores of them, that would transport uh, American natural gas over to Europe to help to keep the lights on. But what's interesting is because the Jones Act, we can transport it to Europe. We cannot transport it to other parts of the United States, most notably uh, New England, Boston, and also Puerto Rico. Uh, wh- why? Well, that's because there are no Jones Act compliant uh, tankers that comply with uh, no Jones Act compliant liquefied natural gas tankers. Um, So especially, you know, specialized vessels for transporting bulk quantities of natural gas. Uh, Why is that? Why has anyone built a a U.S. ship and made it comply with the Jones Act so we can take American natural gas to, to, to New England or Puerto Rico? Well, it's because the economics just don't work. Uh, to build an LNG tanker uh, overseas. A few years ago, the Wall Street Journal pegged that cost about $180 million. I think today it's more like $240 million. Well, they, they also point out that to build in the United States, the estimated cost was $700 million. So we had a delta of over $500 million for building a single ship. And then after you build it, you still have to crew it with Americans. And again, we go higher 
uh, operating costs. So, so, you know, the math does not work. So no one's ever going to build that ship. So Puerto Rico and New England have to import uh, their LNG. You know, we have LNG coming out our ears, but we can't get it there because there are no ships that comply with it. So last year, uh, for example, Puerto Rico at one point imported natural gas from as far away as Oman, uh, you know, halfway around the world. They imported from Nigeria, from Spain, uh, from Trinidad and Tobago, which is, is fairly close, but, but also far more distant places. Um, and meanwhile, you know, we have plentiful supplies, but because of the Jones Act, we can't transport it there. Uh, so we've come to this place where, you know, we can send LNG to China, we can send it to Japan, we can't send it to Puerto Rico. And that's just an absolutely crazy place to be. Yeah. Talk about, yeah, it's, it's, I'm viscerally frustrated by that. Uh, especially, I mean, Puerto Rico gets the shit out of the stick in so many ways from governmental policy, but um, let's, I don't even, I don't want to touch that third rail. Uh, okay, unless you want to say something about that. Yeah, no, I, I will. So another interesting thing is, so that's that's an extreme example where you just, you cannot get American energy. We're, Amer- we're an energy superpower and Puerto Rico can't get LNG. But even in cases where, you know, the, the Jones Act ships do exist, um, because of the distortionary effect of those shipping costs, Puerto Rico still doesn't buy uh, American uh, energy, you know, for things like, you know, motor gasoline or oil uh, for refining, um, you know, diesel fuel. Last year, a colleague and I, uh, we looked at um, some data. Where does Puerto Rico get its energy from? And the overwhelming majority was imported. I think, uh, you know, American sources. So we looked at, I think, um, you know, diesel fuel and LNG and propane, I believe, is, is three or four different types of energy. And American sources accounted for, like, I want to say 5% of what Puerto Rico got. Meanwhile, literally next door is the Dominican Republic, which is foreign, not subject to the Jones Act. They're buying well over half of their energy from the United States. So it has this real disincentivizing effect from buying American energy. And, you know, it, it, for those that are really interested in place a premium on 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 uh, national security and protecting your encouraging domestic supply chains that should offend you but just also from an economic efficiency perspective this is ridiculous and what it suggests is that buying american energy is the best deal you know it's it's it's, it's the most uh, cost efficient way of, of sourcing your energy but we've made it so puerto rico doesn't do that so it means higher emissions cuz the, the 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 gas or the energy has to come from more distant places. Uh, it means that we don't have domestic supply chains, uh, more reliant on foreign sources. And it just means it's costlier. Uh, furthermore, if you want to drill down even more, what's really interesting, last February of last year, February 2022, the same month that Russia invaded Ukraine, that same month, Puerto Rico was importing Russian natural gas. Um, this, it, it came, it went from Russia to Spain and then from Spain to Puerto Rico. This, again, this is just, this is crazy. Um, and they were buying, uh, I, I think, uh, one of my colleagues looked at data recently, it suggested Puerto Rico is buying tens of millions of dollars of Russian, uh, various types of, uh, energy from Russia. So this is, this is nonsensical from an economic perspective. This is nonsensical from a national security perspective. This is not a good place to be. And then it becomes all the more ironic, I, uh, when you consider that the, the Jones Act is typically justified on national security grounds and for protecting America, and yet it's you know pushing 
uh, Puerto Rico to purchase energy from Russia. This this is crazy. Yeah, totally. And the people of Puerto Rico end up having to pay. I mean, they're they're on an island that's you know a ways away from a lot of things. You know, they're much closer to, to Venezuela than they are even to Miami. Uh, so they're gonna it's gonna be more costly to get goods there. But having this premium on top of it is is unnecessary. So the folks there are having to pay for more of everything because it takes more of everything to get there. Um, okay, so you know, there's an interesting thing that's happened recently with the uh, Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips Act. And it's bringing a lot of manufacturing, you know, critical manufacturing, uh, and well, broadly speaking, I think it's trying to incentivize all manufacturing. But you know, especially with things like semiconductors and all of that, it's bringing it, reshoring it back to the states. So to play the devil's advocate here, why not just try to do that again with shipping? Is that what needs to happen, or is it need to happen that it's the broader strokes of the law, both the crewing of it and the you know importation of foreign vessels needs to get relaxed? Uh, yeah, I think, you know, if I were to look at the Jones Act provisions and try to rank them in, you know, in order of how damaging they are, I think by far the most damaging aspect of the law is that U.S. built requirement. Um, you know, as I mentioned, U.S. ships are extremely expensive uh, compared to those built abroad. So when we make shipping or, you know, the purchase of new vessels very expensive, we shouldn't be surprised when the result is uh, you get less shipping. Um and the fleet that you do have is older uh, and less efficient than would otherwise be the case. Um, so Jones Act ships, internationally, ships are typically used, uh, you know, 20 to 25 years is a normal lifespan of a ship. Um, I looked at the most, the last, I think, 15 or so Jones Act ships that were scrapped. And the average age, they wish they were, they were recycled, you know, sent to a scrapyard was around 42, 43 years, something like this. Um, so we have an old fleet. We have a fleet that has declined. Uh, back in, you know, 1980, there were 257 Jones Act ships. Today we're at 91. So I think trying to promote a vibrant shipping industry by artificially raising the cost of new ships is uh, a really poor way of going about things. And I suppose there might be an argument for that if in exchange uh, we had a, a vibrant um, shipbuilding industry, but we don't. Uh, you know, last year there was one Jones Act ship delivered. Well, I should say one ocean-going Jones Act ship delivered and one on the Great Lakes. Uh, that, that one, uh, the ocean-going one, was built. It took like over three years to build, I believe. Uh, you know, overseas, those ships take about a year, maybe a year and a half. Um, uh, and, you know, the year before that, I think there were zero Jones Act ships delivered. The year before that, one. An average year over the last 20 years, there are about three Jones Act ships built. Uh, to put that in perspective, you know, a single shipyard in South Korea can build 50, 60 or more ships per year. That's a single shipyard. Meanwhile, all U.S. shipyards combined are at you know, three. Uh, furthermore, I guess another argument you could you can make is, well, okay, you know, you pay more. Maybe we don't get a lot of ships built, but there's value in not being reliant on foreigners for our shipbuilding needs. Uh, at least this gives us some uh, you know independence in our shipbuilding, but it doesn't. Uh, this is a total myth. Uh, the ships are heavily reliant on foreign uh, designs. Uh, they also rely on foreign components. In fact, 
that the last Jones Act ship built, every major component was imported, uh, including from China. So the notion that uh, you know we pay more, but at least we get we're free of reliance on foreigners is is an illusion. We're very much dependent on foreigners, even with the Jones Act in place. So I think this is a this is a terrible bargain. Um, you know, I, I imagine one other argument one can make is that okay, um, you know, it, it's also good to have shipbuilding in time of war because then you can build new ships. Well, again, ships don't uh, appear overnight. Um, you know, Jones Act ships typically take two to three years to build. I imagine during a time of war, you could accelerate that somewhat, but it's still going to take, you know, a minimum of a year to get this built. Uh, so being able to build ships is good. It's also good to have a lot of ships from the get-go if a conflict breaks out. The Jones Act, Jones Act means, uh, or at least the U.S. built requirement means, a smaller and less modern fleet than would otherwise be the case. Interesting. Um what would it what would it look like like how if let's just say congress got their act together and it seems like the only way they can pass things is if they're massive um you know the amount of bills we 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 pass these days is just less and they're larger which is a whole other subject yeah but let's just say they all of a sudden wave wave their pen and they invest a bunch of money to create new shipyards but keep the jones act in place how long would that take to actually become practical because you know one of the things with manufacturing of you know, certain, certain things, it doesn't take that long to actually build it. But, you know, an example, again, going back to liquid, liquefied natural, uh, natural gas ports, those are not, those are like a multi-year thing to put that together. So I'm, I'm curious as to like, if we were to build a whole bunch of new shipyards, um, is that like a two decade thing to be able to get it to a point to be able to be competing with South Korea? Is that, you know, multi-generational? So, I mean, is, here, here's, like? yeah, here's the issue is that you, know, you can, you can build the shipyard, um, but where is the demand going to come from? Because right now the big problem is that again, uh, you know, a U.S. U.S. So right now, um, a medium-range tanker. So this is the type of tanker that is commonly used for transporting uh, refined products like you know gasoline, jet fuel. Overseas, you know, in Asia, that's about a forty-five million dollar ship. Um, the last last num- most recent number I've seen to build one in the United States, the current estimate is one hundred eighty-five million dollars. So unless that shipyard, if you build it, it's all well and good, but unless you can get your costs, you know, slash your costs by um, you know, just a massive amount, uh, you, you know, by a fourth, um, you, or, you, know, you, you need to get your costs down to what, 75% or, you know, 80%, something like this, um, you, you can't compete. There's going to be no demand for that product and that, that shipyard is not going to do anything. Uh, the, you know, the shipyards that we have right now in the United States, uh, you know, there are six or seven major ones. And what they overwhelmingly do is they build ships for the U.S. Navy, uh, where they have a captive market. And then they build the occasional Jones Act ship. Uh, most of our, in fact, most of our big shipyards, think Newport News in Virginia or Bath Ironworks in Maine, um, you look at uh, Huntington Ingalls and Pascagoula, Mississippi. They build 100% for the Navy. That's all they do. Uh, most of those shipyards have not built a commercial ship in decades. Um, so, you know, it, um, that's that. the key problem you need to solve there is how do you make them competitive? How do you, how do you get them uh, to build ships for a similar cost as what you find overseas? And I, you know, short of just massively subsidizing it, 
and throwing gobs of money, uh, you know, to the tune of, again, you know, um, that tanker example, we'd have to subsidize it by, you know, $140 million uh, per ship. Where's the demand going to come from? Um, where's the incentive to do that? I- I'll note that a few years ago, the, the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, did a study on basically what would it take to build LNG tankers here in the United States, of which we currently have zero. Um, and they, they looked at it. And they figured that in the entire country, there were two shipyards that had the capability of building one of these. But even then, uh, they figured it would take these shipyards four to five years to build one of these ships, whereas you know, over in Asia, it's more like a two-year uh, project. And they, these shipyards admitted, they said, we'd probably have to bring over South Korean uh, workers to, over, to, to oversee things and make sure the work is done correctly because they're the experts. So how, you know, the U.S. is such a, a massive disadvantage. How you turn that around, turn the United States into a shipbuilding power, um, I just don't see it. Uh, lastly, I'll just note, this is not a recent problem. It's not as though the U.S. is fairly competitive and then diverge from uh, other countries uh, in the past few decades. It's been this way for since before the Jones Act was passed. Uh, in fact, back in the late 1800s, you can find examples of U.S. ships being anywhere from 25 to 50% uh, more expensive than those built abroad. So U.S. shipbuilding has been very uncompetitive for over a century. This is, this is an ongoing theme. And again, short of just absolutely massive amounts of subsidies, uh, throwing gobs of money at these shipyards, I don't see how that gets turned around. Yeah, and, and I would imagine the subsidies would, I mean, 75% of the cost being in subsidies would be insane. I'll, I'll point out, actually, back uh, now I'm thinking of it, you know, the U.S., we used to do a system of direct subsidies to our shipbuilding industry uh, from the late 1930s until uh, the early 1980s. Uh, we had something called construction differential subsidies. And as the name kind of suggests, these were subsidies where you would take the differential between the U.S. costs and a foreign cost, and the government would basically cover that spread, that delta. And they would do it up to 50% of the cost of the ship. So we, we, you know, we were doing that, and U.S. shipbuilding was still an uncompetitive mess, and there were still shipyards closing. Um, so even with that kind of generous help, or perhaps because of it, um, you know, U.S. shipbuilding was not in a good place. So I think that's also worth uh, considering uh, for those tempted to say, yeah, let's let's charge ahead with a subsidy program because we've been there before and it didn't work out too well. Yeah, yeah. The, it's, it's the way that I tend to think about the subsidies is they're not sustainable in the way that you're, you're messing with the market enough that it's going to artificially create more, com- I mean, all right, more complexity like what we're talking about here in which the, the true cost of things and the true benefit of things tend to get out of whack. Um, and I think it's a feature, not a bug, of government that it moves slowly. I think sometimes it's, it's actually beneficial to move slowly because uh, then you can kind of see how the trends are happening um, and it insulates you a little bit. But in this case, that's actually going to immediately become the detriment because you put a subsidy in place and there's all these problems that come out of it. Well, now you, the you know market is reliant on the subsidy, which makes it all the harder to... to to fiddle with or change. I mean, corn and I mean, corn just for ethanol alone, let's talk about just, just using that as an example is, is a great, uh, uh, you know, complex situation. Um, now what if we were to say that one part of the Jones act, you can import ships now, how would you foresee the demand curve changing? 
Yeah, I think that uh, there would be a demand for new ships. Um, and there would be, you know, it would, it would affect the economics of shipping. Uh, you make shipping uh, less expensive and demand will rise. Um, so so one, one, one example right now, um, the East Coast imports, uh, a lot of their fuel comes from overseas because once they factor in the cost of shipping, it doesn't make any sense to buy uh, American fuel, American energy. Uh, so either, you know, oil for refining or refined products, you know, like motor gasoline. Uh, that will come from abroad. Get rid of the Jones Act and then, or, or I'm sorry, get rid of that U.S. built requirement and you reduce the cost of shipping. Uh, presumably there'll be more demand that they'll make shipping more attractive, uh, increase the demand for, say, American energy. So there'd be a demand for some new tankers um, to transport energy from the Gulf Coast up to the Mid-Atlantic uh, and the Northeast. Uh, so that's that's one thing one can imagine happening. Um, so the only I, th there will clearly be uh, demand for more shipping. You can imagine new uh, routes uh, emerging. You know, right now, for example, there are no Jones Act container ships that operate up and down the East Coast. Uh, there are no uh, Jones Act ships that go from say Houston uh, to the Mid Atlantic or the Northeast. So you know. Um, get those capital costs under control and one could potentially see uh, a trade route like that imagine uh, or emerge rather. Um, so yeah, I think, I think there would be increased demand for new ships and, and then also there'd be um, an incentive to recapitalize uh, and modernize the existing fleet. Um, so, you know, like, for example, our general cargo ships, I think they average, you know, they're over 30 years old. There are nine of them. Uh, so there'll probably be some demand to, to buy new, new ships and replace some of those. So between, you know, new demand from new, new, new uh, trades emerging and the increased incentive to get rid of old ships, yeah, I think there would be uh, an influx of new shipping. The only, the only real debate is what, what's the quantity? How much are we talking here? Um, I don't have a good sense of that. Um, yeah, because the Jones Act has been around for so long uh, and U.S. Uh, supply chains have, have oriented themselves away from shipping, uh, it, it's hard to uh, immediately say, okay, well, you know, we had these kind of shipping uh, routes before the Jones Act and maybe those could reemerge because we've been this way for so long. Uh, it's, it's kind of a guessing game. Uh, which which new trade routes would emerge? But I can only say there would definitely be um, more shipping and a demand for more ships to 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 meet that demand, uh, increased demand for shipping. Yeah. Oh, and I show. Sorry to interrupt, but also we should look at the, the you know the, the Great Lakes example. Uh, so I'm thinking you know here coastal, but I would think there's no reason why the U.S. wouldn't mirror what's happened in Canada. Uh, Canada removed the tariff on new ships, and they got influx of new ships for their Great Lakes fleet. We have a very old fleet uh, operating on the Great Lakes. It's not uncommon to find ships that are 60 years old or more or, or older in that fleet. So I think there would be a, a real incentive at, at a minimum to uh, replace replace those ships with newer, more efficient ones. Yeah, and I mean, just, well, I mean, this is a complete and utter sidestep, but one of the things I think about a lot is that I live, you know, a coastal Lake Michigan and I go between Chicago, Grand Rapids, Wisconsin, like, you know, I'll, I'll go all up and down there. And every, like the last time I was in Grand Rapids, not that long ago, 
I was looking at the map and you know, like when you're uh, you're driving a long distance, Google Maps will like zoom you out so you can kind of see like a bird's eye view. And in the shot, I saw right across the lake, Milwaukee, Madison, Wisconsin, and Chicago. And I was just thinking like, man, how amazing would it be to have a ferry? It would take you like 40 minutes to go across this on a ferry. Uh, you put your car in here and you can just go right across as opposed to it taking, I mean, to go from Grand Rapids to, you know, Milwaukee, that's seven, eight hours maybe because you have to go all the way around. You have to think about traffic going through two major cities. You know, it, it's insane. Uh, just the ability to ship things to across that would be amazing. You know, uh, back in the day, uh, the, the furniture industry in Chicago was sparked because you could go from the coast of Michigan and ship the logs all the way across to, to be able to mill them and do all that in Chicago. So the, the interstate commerce, what would emerge would be interesting because once again, the cost of shipping, you know, in, uh, in inner waterways is so low when you think about how much it actually costs to move per pound versus a truck or things like that. And being able to, the complexity of this is being able to factor that in and how, it would change things is difficult. You know, like I could envision a day where there's those, I mean, I don't really like the monopolization of Amazon doing everything, but I can envision a day where Amazon all of a sudden has those cheeky little smile check mark things on barges going down the Illinois Michigan canal, you know, it's going from one city to another or, you know, bringing it down South to be able to get to Houston or, or you know, wherever it need, need to go. Um, I could easily see that happening, but it's just so hard to see it because, we're so centric on road primarily to ship things, you know, what would, what would be different if it wasn't, you know, there wasn't that hindrance and, and also what would the be knock on economic effects too, because if all of a sudden it's cheaper to, to ship certain things um, that are heavier, you know, we, we talk about wanting to reinvigorate American steel, which I think is slowly happening. Um, but if you were able to ship that on, uh, waterways, as opposed to what I see it all the time on railways, uh, you know, what would that end up happening as a knock-on effect for all manufacturing? Absolutely, absolutely. There's, you know, there's, uh, as you point out, there's a lot of talk about trying to encourage uh, manufacturing in the United States and revitalize it. Um, and you know, I think nothing symbolizes manufacturing more than steel, at, at least in the minds of, of a lot of people. And the Jones Act undermines our steel industry, um, as I mentioned earlier. You want to ship, um, you know, pellets from from uh, you know Minnesota to to steel mills. That has to go on a Jones Act ship, which is you know less efficient, uh, raises costs. And then actually, after you you know produce the steel and you want to ship it to other parts of the United States, there's the Jones Act tax you have to pay. Um, this isn't theoretical. Back in the 1980s, I believe the U.S. International Trade Commission did a study on the U.S. steel industry and why it was struggling to compete with uh, imports in the western part of the United States. So why you know, eastern steel producers were having a hard time competing with imports in the western U.S. And one thing to point out was it explicitly called out the Jones Act the high and the high cost of, of shipping to move steel to the western United States. Because imports, they can use efficient international shipping. But American companies have to use inefficient Jones Act shipping. And after you factor in the cost of transportation, uh, it put U.S. steel at a competitive disadvantage. Um, you know, I'm a free trader. I'm not a big believer in industrial policy and, you know, trying to encourage certain industries over others. But I also don't understand why we should be punishing uh, American industries and, and, and hindering them 
uh, in, in this way. So you know, we want to talk about uh, manufacturing revitalization. I think it should start with revisiting policies like the Jones Act. And as you said, um, you know, this is transportation. Transportation affects almost literally everything. Um, it's so fundamental, especially in a country the size of the United States. We are a huge country and distance is a barrier to trade and overcoming that barrier involves uh, efficient transportation. And we are hamstringing ourselves um, by, uh, by you know, crippling ourselves by subjecting us to artificially higher transportation costs through the Jones Act. Yeah, one hundred. Yeah, totally. I mean, you're you're painting that picture quite well, and you know, like personally, one of the things that I, my political philosophy for the role of government should be focusing on the things that are most essential and foundational. And you know, sometimes it does mean making decisions that you want to spur certain ind- industries because of national security or things like that. Um, and I think something that we've noticed, you know, with both with COVID and then with Ukraine, and I think is going to continue happening, you know, is the kind of regionalization is the response to the, or the overreaction, I suppose, uh, with every action being an overreaction uh, to globalization, you know, we probably should be focusing on more foundational things like transportation and also energy, which you bring up as well. This is a transportation thing, which then has a knock-on effect of being a manufacturing uh, issue. But then, you know, as you point out again, it has a knock-on effect of being an energy one because if we want to reduce emissions, if we want to rely more on domestic energy, well, natural gas, we have, you know, a lot of natural gas. Um, Why don't we try to spur this type of, you know, development, you know, like something that I learned quite recently uh, is that the development of the Illinois and Michigan canal and how giant of a deal that was. Because before, if you were in Chicago and you wanted to transport things along the Mississippi river, you have to portage it, which means, you know, you put it on the donkeys or you yep. put it on the wagons and then carry it, yep. you know, pretty much to, to Joliet. And then once you get to Joliet, you'd be able to, you know, put it down the river and eventually get to, uh, get to the, the uh, Mississippi. But with the Illinois and Michigan canal, you now have a complete waterway. And it's so fascinating to me that when we would dig things by hand, it was so important for us to make sure we had this. And now, you know, we've kind of all, all but abandoned it. I mean, pretty much because of the fact that we don't have any ships to be able to do this. So being able to, to move energy, being able to move uh, goods, but also, want the, you know, let's bring it back to the national security, which is part of what the Jones Act was there in the first place, is if, if things really do happen, if there is a, you know, a global chaos or a global chain, you know, chain disruption, which I think personally, uh, especially after reading Zion's book, I think is going to happen more and more often, uh, in the next couple of years before things shaken out and, and stabilize, um, having the flexibility of being able to say, well, let's just ship it through the, through the water. Let's do it, uh, you know, a different means or different mode than we had it going before. And the, the insulation that you get to any shock in any type of system, whatever it may be, and, and, and things we probably can't see coming, like if it's a natural disaster or any other type of, you know, catastrophic or unforeseen black swan event. Yeah, I, you know, I think basically, you know, U.S. maritime policy should try to do two things. It should, one, try to provide us with efficient uh, waterborne transportation, uh, which should be a massive asset in a country with the geographical disposition of the United States. I think it clearly fails there. But the other thing it should do is meet our national security needs. You know, in time of war, we have enough ships and shipbuilding and trained mariners 
to you know repair uh, ships for the navy and transport goods for the military to wherever they're needed, and it's failing there too. Uh, you know, in fact, you know we have a there's a, a few years ago the U.S. Um, U.S. government did a study of how many mariners we would have if a war broke out, a sustained conflict of six months or longer, and they said in a best case scenario we'd be eighteen hundred short of what's needed. Uh, ship building. Well, we already went over that, you know, building, you know, maybe three ships a year in recent years has been lower than that one or zero ships per year. Um, and then the fleet, you know, has declined dramatically. And furthermore, the Jones Act fleet, uh, it's kind of a misconception. I think a lot of people assume that in time of war, we could grab all these Jones Act ships and then use them to transport goods for the military. The military doesn't use Jones Act ships, uh, or at least not very often. In fact, they've explicitly stated that uh, in times of conflict, that Jones Act shipping would not be used uh, because, you know, for the obvious reason that if we're transporting goods um, if from the U.S. coast to Hawaii, that, you know, uh, who's going to do that if those ships are taken out to be used for the military? Um, so actually, you know, the government relies on non-Jones Act ships that are foreign built but U.S. flagged uh, to transport. That's their primary source of commercial uh, cool. All right. So jumping, jumping in a little bit and expanding on that, of what you said, yeah. you know, the, the things that maritime industry, you know, maritime, uh, policy. things that Congress or the government yeah. could do to mar- yeah. maritime policy. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so it is, is kind of what we need then like all things, which makes it more difficult, a mix of solutions in which we need to be able to import more, but then we also need to, you know, foster the competition of our own shipbuilding. Because uh, that, that, I mean, I do think that would be an interesting or, or effective way of insulating us is that we need more shipbuilding. But in order to do that, we probably need to be more competitive. So verticals and niches form. Um, so something almost like, you know, Japan as a policy, they, they did something that's really interesting. Harvard Business Review has an amazing article from, I think it's the mid 90s on it, uh, about strategic intent in which, you know, they came to America to learn logistics and they signed all these um automa- uh, automotive deals and contracts with american mon- manufacturers and automotive manufacturers you know in a short run to learn how to tap into the american market learn how americans do logistics and manufacturing and then re- you know remove that and then the- their industry would be spurred enough to be able to to pick it up where it is toyota is a-, a great example of this you know toyota manufactures a lot in america uh even though you know at the time up until more recently not many american car manufacturers did so is the solution a mix of both importing more and fostering the niches more within the the maritime industry to be able to build more shipyards? Because you know we we do want shipyards here, especially for how big we are. Uh, but we also know that the only way demand may shift um, is by importing more. Is that is that something that you think is a, a good idea, or is well, you think we relax it, it'll take care of itself or emerge on its own? I think that, well, we, you know, first things first, I do think we should get rid of the U.S. built requirement. Um, And I think it's worth recognizing that if we did that, all we would really be doing is bringing the Jones Act in line with our policy for all other transportation sectors. Remember, you don't have to have a U.S. built truck, uh, U.S. built train, um, you know, U.S. built airplane to transport goods. Uh, We allow, you know, foreign uh, equipment in there. I think that our uh, trucking and rail 
and aerospace industries are, are better for that. Um, so I think that that'd be the first thing we should do. Uh, they, would, they would promote, you know, modernization of the fleet, which is a good thing, both economically and from a national security perspective, uh, you know, it'd be more efficient, uh, fleet. And I also think that the, the competition would be a good thing for the U S shipbuilding industry. Um, I think that, I don't think that if we got rid of it, that suddenly, or even in a few years that we would see the U S start cranking out, uh, big commercial ships. I think that the Asians are just so far ahead of the United States that um, if I find a competitive niche there would be very difficult. What I do think is perhaps more useful is to think of maybe Europe as kind of an analog for the United States and where we can be. Um, you know, the Europeans don't build big tankers or container ships or bulk ships. Uh, that's gone to Asia, but they have carved out niches in other places, like Turkey, for example. They are uh, renowned for their tugboat industry. They're very good at that. The Netherlands are very good at building dredging vessels. Uh, Finland is uh, very good at icebreakers. Uh, Germany and France uh, build cruise ships. Um, so I think the U.S. could carve out you know, a niche of its own. Um, and right now they're they're not incentivized to do that. U.S. shipbuilders are kind of a, a jack of trades, master of none, uh, kind of all over the place. I also think that if we got rid of the U.S. built requirement, it would uh, improve the competitiveness of U.S. shipbuilders uh, because they would get um, better access to foreign inputs. So, for example, a few years ago, a shipyard in Washington State built a fishing vessel. And $75 million shipping vessel. They use a Norwegian design, I believe, lots of imported components, and it was top of the line. But after it was built, uh, they discovered that too much of the steel used in building it was imported. Now, under the Jones Act, you can use foreign steel if it comes in standard shapes and sizes, but you can't form it or, or, or bend the steel in another country and then bring it in. Or you're, you're allowed a maximum of like one and a half percent of the ship's weight can be foreign bent steel. Well, it turned out this ship used like, I want to say like eight percent, something like that. It came from the Netherlands. It was bent. Um, and so there actually had to be an act of Congress passed to give an exemption to this ship so they could be used in American waters because otherwise they're going to have to sell the ship at a big loss to some foreigner somewhere because it couldn't be used in the United States because it had too much foreign steel. That's crazy. Um, you know, something that the Norwegians do and others, I think the Dutch, to try to stay competitive is they, they do some outsourcing. So they will outsource construction of the hull of the ship to a shipyard in, say, Poland or Croatia or Bulgaria, someplace like this. And then they'll bring the hull over to Norway or the Netherlands, and they will uh, assemble the hull and then do all the outfitting, which is taking all the high-end components and you know the engine, things that actually make the ship work, and doing all that installation there. Um, you know, if you try doing that with, say, Mexico, you know, setting up the, the hull assembly in Mexico, then bring it to the U.S. and... Uh, doing all the outfitting in the U.S. shipyard, that ship would not be Jones Act compliant. You could not use that ship in the United States. Um, so I think it would help with that. If we um, made shipping cheaper 
That means we would have more uh, ships going up and down our coast, which means there'd be more opportunities to repair ships, which would also be very useful. So there's some new potential business for American shipyards to repair those ships going uh, operating in American waters. Um, so uh, I, I think shipbuilding would definitely look different uh, without without the Jones Act in, in place, but I reject the, the notion it would disappear or, you know, because if you believe that, you're essentially saying Americans are good enough, Americans can't compete, Americans have nothing to offer the world in the absence of the Jones Act. I just don't believe that. I, I, I have more faith in the American worker, in the inventiveness and the competitiveness of American companies, uh, and I don't think they need um, protectionism to have a presence in the global shipbuilding world. Um, I, I'll add that, so as I said, I don't think we would build you know huge... Um, merchant ships. But if people make a convincing case that we need that for national security, then, you know, I think uh, the government should just order sh more ships. Right now we have what's called the Ready Reserve Force. This is, uh, these are government owned ships. There are 40 some of these ships um, and they average around 45 years old. They're, they're old, old ships. Some of them are still, uh, they use, you know, steam propulsion uh, as opposed to Seriously? modern, you know, diesel. Yeah. And, and in fact, it's, it's, it's difficult finding the, the guy, uh, qualified personnel who can operate on these types of engines because they're so, they're so out of date. Um, so there's, you know, there's an opportunity like here. Hey, frame computers on critical. Right. It's, it's crazy that's stuff. Outrageous. This is what's, you know, supposed to be used to transport uh, equipment for the military in times of war. So if we need to get to guarantee uh, more business for our shipyards so that so they stay in business, so we have these shipyards available, the government should write a check and buy some more ships and buy it from from these shipyards. There's an opportunity right there to keep these guys in business if that's what national security demands. Um, so I think there are much more creative ways of going about things than the Jones Act, which, again, I don't care if you look at this from an economic perspective or a national security perspective, it's it's not meeting the country's needs. Uh, we don't have efficient waterborne transportation. Our, our, sh our commercial shipbuilding industry is a shell of what it was. Um, we don't have enough mariners and we have a, a shrinking and aging fleet. So uh, I, I think that all those facts demand a complete reevaluation of, of, of US maritime policy. Yeah, I, you, you make such a great case for this. Um, you know, one of the things I, uh, you know, in my day job of, of consulting and, and building software for companies, if it's a digital transformation, or I do a lot of work in emerging tech. So right now I do a lot of work with, with Web3 and machine learning. But one of the things I always point out is the areas that a company is leaving money on the table. And, you know, the way that I like to put it is, hey, you have such an opportunity right here. Uh, you're leaving money on the table by not investing in this. And this is such an amazing example of how much opportunity there is. Um, it's like if you're telling me like one of our greatest assets, I mean, our greatest asset in, as America is our geography. Like there's there's no doubt about that. Like our resources, the fact we go from coast to coast, you know, the the fact that we have such a diversity of ecosystems and, you know, uh, re natural resource reserves, it's, it's astounding. Um, and one of the biggest aspects of that when it comes to transportation, we're leaving on the table, uh, which is just, it's just crazy to me. Um, and I think the point you brought up of, you know, if it's trucks, if it's rail, if it's aerospace, you know, re relaxing this requirement, we just put it at par with every other mode of transportation, um, which is which is interesting because it's the equivalent of saying, 
you know, you have to build the car all in America. And if you make the body panels and the fenders somewhere else, you can't put it on that car and sell it in America is, is, is absolutely crazy. Um, you know, you know I, is I just, any moment? Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. I just, just, here's, here's another way of kind of framing this or thinking about it. Um, you know, there's a quote by the economist, Henry George says, um, Protectionism teaches us to do in times of peace what our enemies would do to us in times of war. And you think about that and you apply it to the maritime industry. Um, Jones Act supporters will often cite China as a reason to maintain the Jones Act, because if we get rid of the Jones Act, then we basically cave to China or it's, you know, it's a bulwark against Chinese uh, expansionism. Well, I think about it like this. If China really wanted to sabotage the U.S. maritime industry, they would get together with every other country and say, guys, please do not sell the Americans any ships. Let's, let's just do a big international embargo on the Americans and don't give them access to your shipyards, to your know-how, and to your more efficient vessels. But of course, the Chinese don't have to lift a finger because that's exactly what we've done to ourselves. Um, you know, so again, it's just, it's just, it's, it's crazy policy. It's counterproductive. Uh, it doesn't pass the smell test. I really love that quote, by the way, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to use that and think about that. The, the protectionism, protectionism quote, um, you know, is there any momentum in one way or the other? Like, is there any momentum to review, you know, revoke this? Is there any momentum to keep it in place? And in either case, you know, why is there momentum and does it have something to do with the fact that we seem to only be able to pass massive bills and not make incremental advancements or improvements anymore as, as far as the National Congress? Yeah, the, so the state of play with the Jones Act right now is, is it's interesting. We've seen both more criticism, I think, than ever of, of the Jones Act. Uh, you know, my colleague Scott Linsicum at Cato, he, he had a piece published in The Atlantic, I think, two weeks ago. Uh, about the Jones Act and the cost it imposes. And, you know, the Atlantic reached out to him and, and asked him to write it because obviously this is an issue they find of, of interest and of relevance. Um, literally yesterday's Boston Globe had an op-ed uh, about making the case for trying to improve uh, the country's environment by eliminating red tape. And one, uh, the author specifically called out the Jones Act as something uh, that... Um, it degrades the environment and as they, they look at it more specifically through the prism of uh, offshore wind and the obstacles that the Jones Act presents to the deployment of offshore wind. Um, but again, there's that recognition. We saw last year after Hurricane Fiona hit uh, Puerto Rico, there were, I believe, eight members of Congress, 10 members of Congress uh, who called for a one year suspension uh, of the Jones Act for, for Puerto Rico. Uh, these tend to be members uh, from the Puerto Rican diaspora, including like uh, AOC, for example. She she joined in on that call. Uh, and then also last year we saw Representative um, uh, Scott Perry of Pennsylvania. He introduced legislation that would have uh, uh, waived the Jones Act for the transportation of LNG that we discussed earlier in this conversation because he recognizes how crazy this is and Americans can't get access to American energy. Uh, Senator Ted Cruz did the same thing. Um, and we've seen Representative uh, Ed Case of Hawaii introduce legislation to exempt the non-contiguous states and territories uh, from the Jones Act as he recognizes the harm that it causes. Uh, so we've seen 
there's, there's been definitely more chatter about it. We have seen uh, a variety of uh, members of Congress from across the political uh, ideological spectrum uh, identify the Jones Act as a problem and even introduce legislation to address it. Uh, but on the other side um, of the coin, we've also seen uh, a really relentless focus by the Jones Act lobby to keep this law in place and to fight any efforts uh, to pare it back. In fact, last year, so um, we have this interesting example. After Hurricane Fiona uh, hit Puerto Rico, there was a demand for diesel fuel in Puerto Rico because the electrical system was degraded, uh, went out of service. So a lot of people turned to generators. They need diesel fuel. Well, there happened to be a foreign flag ship going from Texas on its way to Europe with uh, 300,000 barrels of diesel fuel. So that ship diverted to Puerto Rico so that it could offload its diesel there in Puerto Rico. But then, of course, there's the Jones Act. This is a foreign ship going from Texas to Puerto Rico. So it couldn't offload its cargo without a Jones Act waiver. After several days, the Biden administration eventually granted that waiver, but uh, the Jones Act lobby was furious about this. Um, and during a, last year's National Defense Authorization Act, uh, there was language of, you know, this is a, a bill that was over a thousand pages. And there are a few paragraphs slipped in there that said, you know, in the future, Jones Act waivers, any Jones Act, any, any waiver can only be for a ship that is empty of cargo at the time the waiver is granted. It, it, was, it was very much a specific reaction to this waiver to ensure that that kind of waiver could not happen again. Because, again, this was a ship that already had the diesel loaded. So if, that, if, if, if another hurricane were to hit Puerto Rico today or later this year, and there happened to be a foreign ship going by with the fuel that Puerto Rico needs, it could not offload it there. It would have to unload its, its, its cargo, then go to American port, then pick it up, then go to Puerto Rico. So it actually made it more difficult for Americans to, uh, to help in times of emergency. Um, and this kind of speaks to the overall political dynamic. You know, again, this was a, a big bill. I imagine very few members of Congress read it uh, from start to finish. Probably didn't even know this provision was in there, uh, but the Jones Act special interests were able to get that in there. Uh, this is basically a must-pass piece of legislation. It literally funds the military. Um, and there you go. And here we are. Wow. Uh, what, where, where's the money in this lobby? Like, and like, I couldn't imagine that this is a very, I mean, they seem very influential, but it's, I mean, how, it, it's a couple of things. Yeah. It's a couple of things going on here. So number one is that, uh, you know, there's a, it's there's a lot of groups that, uh, have an interest in maintaining the Jones act. Um, it is obviously the, the ship builders because they, <laughs> this is a lot says you have to buy what they make. Uh, so we have the Shipbuilders council of America, for example, uh, it means that obviously the vessel operators, the people operating Jones Act ships, uh, they want to maintain this law in place. They want to keep out the foreign competition. Uh, it means that the people that crew these ships, which tend to be unionized, um, so you get you know the AFL-CIO on board uh, with this and, and all the smaller unions, the Marine Engineers Beneficial Association, the Seafarers International Union, the Masters, Mates, and Pilot Union, 
um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so, you know, you get the, we talk about the Great Lakes. There's something called the Lake Carriers Association. You go, it's called, uh, go to their website, lcaships.com. They have a section of their website devoted just to the Jones Act and why we need to maintain it. So they are here in Washington uh, every day. They're on Capitol Hill making the case. They explicitly state that it's their mission to reach out to every member of Congress and make the case. And meanwhile, there's no countervailing lobbying force out there. There's no organization that's explicitly dedicated to opposing the Jones Act and getting rid of the Jones Act. Whereas, you know, in contrast, I can think of, you know, a dozen organizations out there that maintain the Jones Act is, if not the number one priority, it's like a top three priority. So it's a very asymmetric dynamic. And kind of the last thing I'll leave you with uh, to help explain the status quo, why things are the way they are. Um, I think it was last year, the year before, Matt Iglesias, uh, tweeted something about the Jones Act. You know, why can't we get rid of this? Uh, what are the dynamics? And somebody responded and said, you know, I used to be a staffer for a member of Congress from, I think, Appalachia. And we would get these Jones Act lobbyists come to us and, you know, they donate. And the only thing they ask is they say, hey, uh, every six or eight years that this a bill comes up to do something about the Jones Act change, just vote no. That's all we ask. You know, we're not asking you to introduce legislation or be proactive and go out and do something. Just if a bill happens to come up, you know, vote the right way. That's it. So, you know, the dynamics are this. If you are a representative of a case in Hawaii um, or some of these other members that I mentioned or Senator Mike Lee of Utah, who has introduced Jones Act repeal legislation, you you introduce those bills. You just made yourselves a, a bunch. You made yourself a bunch of enemies, people that will oppose you and try to get you. Uh, fund your opponent and make sure you don't have much of a political future. And your odds of success are, are, are dim. You know, it's, it's a really tough issue to win on. Meanwhile, if you support the Jones Act, you know, you're, uh, the number of people that will come into your office and say, how dare you support the Jones Act is very minimal. Uh, and, and you get endorsements, you get, you get cash, you get votes. Um, so, so, uh, you know, the incentives, uh, are skewed, tilted very much in one direction. And we're talking about the Jones Act, but I could apply this to any number of issues where this dynamic holds. And that goes a long way to explaining why things are the way they are. What a great encapsulation of the state of play. Like the, the complexity of the status quo and how you have a small group of people who are dedicated to a single thing. They put it in plain terms and they only ask certain things from it and then that's it. And it's such a, like you said, it's a great state of play for so many other issues that don't have the political capital of an opposing force to dis dismantle it. So, you know, hopefully just disseminating the knowledge like you've been doing, like you know, on this episode and also in the blog posts and all your work at the Cato Institute, hopefully more folks would, will understand this, this hindrance uh, and, you know, put some pressure on people because, you know, if democracy works best, if everybody's well-informed and if everyone's well-informed then that kind of you know it's it's e plurius ubrium right like it's uh, you know just we're, the, we're all better than the sum of our uh some of our parts so um yeah thank you again for taking the time it's been it's been great chatting with you again and, and the work that you're doing for the jones act and you know breaking down this complicated uh you know a, a bit obtuse thing that's been, that's old that seems like it's oh well, well come on that, that can't be that bad but actually the knock-on effects are terrible uh, and only seems to be increasing as the, the fleet size within the U.S. is, is shrinking. Um, and maybe the, the polarity in this case could uh, lead to some incremental change. We can be we can be hopeful, I guess.
Yeah, well, thank you again for the opportunity to talk about this. Uh, I hope we're able to do it again, uh, maybe in a year or two, and I'll come back with, with better news <laughs> about, about the state of play and where things yeah, stand. that'd be great. That would be great.